shake myself free, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, again, Samson's detractors look at the end of Samson's life, and they conclude that here it is. This is just another more of Samson's over-the-top violence, selfishness, bloody, thirsty revenge. And again, erroneous. Uh, There is revenge here. But it's the Philistines taking their revenge on Samson. They imprison him in Gaza because earlier, Samson literally ripped the gates off of Gaza, leaving it defenseless for Israel to attack, but Israel didn't attack. So in revenge, you took our city gates, Samson, so we'll shut you up inside our city's dungeon gates. In chapter 15, earlier, Samson had destroyed their grain fields. And he did that to show up and humiliate their false god, Dagon, who was the god of grain. And now the Philistines, in revenge, make him grind grain and serve their god, Dagon. And here in chapter 16, they throw this huge party to celebrate their victory over Samson. And when they're drunk, they yell, bring out Samson to make us laugh. And they bring him out. And it's not that he performs for them. It's just the sight of him that makes them laugh, that they find entertaining. And to cap off the mocking, they take him to the pillars of their temple because the pillars are like the city gates. And the city gates is the place where you judge. You judge at the city gates, you judge at these pillars. They, they don't have any gates anymore because of Samson. So here they are, they bring him to the pillars. And, and here's what they're saying. So here's the judge of Israel. Come on, judge, lay down some judgment on us at our place of judgment. What do you got? And the whole time, they're saying, praise be to our God, Dagon, who has delivered our enemy into our hands. But what we know is it was our God. It was Samson's God 
who delivered Samson over to the Philistines. God has brought Samson to the place where he can do the most damage and the most good at the right time. Uh, The role of the judge was to deliver Israel from her enemies, and he's still got that role. Uh, Samson, we haven't, we haven't read all the history here, but, but God has, has, uh, has so attached this miracle strength to his hair. Uh, and he was betrayed. Delilah, who should have loved him, cut his hair. Had his hair cut by the Philistines. Uh, and it's actually something, this is another crazy story. Samson let her do it. Uh, but now here his hair has grown back, which means... God has given his miraculous strength back to him for his purposes. Under the roof, held up by these pillars, are great, great crowds. It says, the rulers of the Philistines and the statue of their God. And on the roof itself, there are 3,000 more people. So there between these two pillars that are, su- that are supporting this whole house temple, where judgment takes place, there is Samson being mocked as a judge, and here he really does render a judgment. As God's judge, he prays to God, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may, and it says avenge himself, uh, a, a, a good translation would be to redress this injustice. Samson's critics want to say that he's being self-centered here. He's not. It, this is not revenge. This is about justice. And he says it for his two eyes. And again, you know, we're jumping right into the end of this thing. If we read all of Judges, you know that uh, Samson is the judge. And a recurring motif in the book of Judges is all about eyes. You you see it again and again and again, this refrain. Uh, The eyes is the standard. It's the symbol for the standard of right and wrong. And, And for the people of Israel who keep rebelling, the refrain for them over and over is, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But Samson's standard is God's standard. This is why the Philistines gouged out his eyes. This is more revenge. This, this is, it's not so much about impairing him. It's not so much about torturing him. Uh, it's about maiming him in such a way for all to see, here's the great judge of Israel. Okay, who sees right and wrong? Thought he could judge us. Now he's a blind fool. It's their rejection of his standard and God's standard, the God of Israel. So Samson prays, give me the strength to right this injustice, injustice, this rejection of you, O God. The the very, very, very first judges that we read about, uh, guys are uh, Othniel and Ehud. They were able to rally all of Israel to fight their oppressors. Deborah and Barak, uh, they took two tribes with them. Gideon had only 300 men. By Samson's time, sin has so corrupted the people of Israel, no one is willing to fight the enemy anymore. This message with Samson is God can save his people through just one person. God can save through one champion. And because here it is, Samson's military victory here, it's not just his victory. This is Israel's victory. Because Samson wins here, Israel wins, even though they didn't do anything, uh, even though they didn't want to be a part of this fight right here. But now, now Samson is gone. 
And this is the cycle throughout the book of Judges is God raises up a judge, he delivers his people, but when that judge dies, the people go off again, off into sin and rebellion and off into terrible uh, Canaanite idolatry. Now that Samson is gone, it will not be long before Israel rejects God again without their judge to lead them. They're going to descend into darkness again. And, and this is where, like, as you're ending Judges, you, you might not think it, but, but there is a flickering of hope in the dark, way, way off in the distance. Did you, um, how far do you guys think you can see? Let's talk about your eyes. Like, how, how good are your eyes? How far do you think you can see? Like, do you think, uh, you think you can see 300 yards pretty good? Or uh, 500 yards? How about a, a mile, maybe? Uh, think farther, maybe 10 miles? Did you know uh, if, you, if you cancel out the curvature of the earth uh, and you get up way on top of a mountain, uh, if you stand on a mountain on a dark night, you could see the flickering of a single candle 30 miles away. The rod cells in the back of your retina only need like five of them to fire. Like each of them rece receiving a single photon of light. Here's Samson. He's alone and he's fighting the enemy. And now he's gone and this light goes out and Israel would des will descend once again into darkness. But there is, there is another light flickering in the distance. You actually probably, you, you, you know, this, here's the metaphor helps. Uh, this flickering light, you can't see it actually because it's 50 miles away. But literally, 50 miles north, as Samson goes down, God has raised up another prophet to judge Israel, and it's Samuel. The book of Samuel that we are about to get into, the book of Samuel opens during Israel's dark days of the judges. Samson is the last judge of the book of Judges. Samuel is the first judge of the book of Samuel, and truly he will be the last of all the judges. The book of Samuel picks up where Judges ends. Everything is dark with sin and brokenness, and practically no one is following God. But then 1 Samuel reveals to us that in the darkness there is another flickering of light, another unexpected hero, Samuel, who just like Samson is a miracle child who is miraculously given to uh, barren parents, just like Samson. God has, God has saved uh, his people with unexpected heroes before. Uh, you got to think like Moses. God picked Moses, uh, a man with a speech impediment, to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful king in all the world. All the judges, if we were to, you know, Go through the book of Judges. All the judges are second Moses figures. They're all like Moses. And like Moses, all the judges point ahead to another deliverer. We're going to see David, who we'll see is another unexpected hero. Because the book of Judges, this stuff is written. It's written at the time of King David in order to defend King David's claim to the throne over Israel over against the claims of Saul. And his descendants, we're going to see this. David, it turns out, is the unexpected deliverer over Israel God raises up. 
One commentator looking at First and Second Samuel says, this, this book of Samuel is the greatest single narrative in antiquity. And what we're going to see by the end is that it ends on this huge cliffhanger because all of this, Judges, First and Second Samuel, it's all a prologue to the son of David. And, 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 and yeah, and then there's Solomon comes, but it's not just Solomon. It's David's greater son, Jesus Christ. David, Samuel, Samson, all the judges, Moses, they all lead us to Jesus. I mean, who is like Samson? This lone champion. You're supposed to think, well, David, David's like Samson. Yeah, you know, like David and Goliath. Yes, and we will get there. Yes. But more, I mean, who else is tortured and chained? Who else is put on public display to be mocked? Who else is humiliated for the entertainment of others? They blinded Samson and they mocked him. They blindfolded Jesus and they beat him and they yelled, you're a prophet, prophesy who hit you. They screamed at Samson, how could this be the judge? They screamed at Jesus, how could this be the Christ? Both died with arms outstretched. Both appear completely struck down by their enemies. Both their accursedness and abandonment by God both are misinterpreted as a sign of ultimate rejection. But this is the salvation of their people. Jesus is like Samson, but he's the better Samson. Samson was not sinless. Make that clear. Samson was a sinner too, but the book of Judges uh, is not highlighting his sinfulness. The book of Judges is consciously, intentionally highlighting Samson's faithfulness. And the point of the book is to point out the stark contrast between the judges like Samson and the rest of Israel who are unfaithful. Here, Samson is the only faithful Israelite left to fight this fight right here. But Jesus was actually completely sinless and perfectly obedient, and he is the only one left who could fight our enemy of sin and death. Jesus is the better Samson. Samson, as the only faithful Israelite left, is the only one who does not deserve this death that he dies. Samson does not deserve this punishment. He does not deserve to die like this. But he takes this suffering and he takes this death for his people who do deserve this, for a rebellious people. In executing judgment on the Philistines, Samson, the judge, is also taking that judgment that his people deserve. And he's taking it in their place so that they don't suffer this punishment. But, but again, he's just a picture, a, a historical, true picture pointing ahead to ultimate salvation. Jesus, as the only true faithful human being who ever lived, is truly the only person in the history of mankind who does not deserve death. Jesus does not deserve punishment. Jesus did not deserve the cross. But Jesus, the ultimate judge, takes the ultimate judgment that his people deserve in their place so that we do not suffer it in the end. And so what are we supposed to do with this? Every single judge that God raises up is an unexpected hero. I mean, these judges, they're, they're, all of them are weak in the eyes of the world in one way or another. You, know, you go back to the first judge, Othniel, he was a foreigner. The second judge, Ehud, he was physically disabled. The third judge, Shamgar, was an enemy turned convert. 
Samson, in the end, he was blinded, he was imprisoned. And the temptation for us, like as we read these, these hero stories, the temptation going forward as we read about Samuel, we read about David, we read about Jonathan, the, the, all of them unexpected heroes. The temptation is to, to identify with these judges and say something like, you know, I'm weak too, and God will use me and my weakness for his glory. That is definitely true. Like that is a true statement that God will use your weakness and work in your weakness for his glory. Yes, that is true. But that is not the first application for us from these passages because we are not the ones that judges point to in the first place. We've got to be, we've got to be, you know, let's be careful here. The point is we're not like the judges. We're not the savior deliverers. We're not like David in that sense. Jesus is like the judges. We're like the idolatrous Israelites that have run off. Our problem is we are always trying to be our own heroes. And so we're not looking expectantly to the real hero. I mean, for us to draw the application from this passage that God uses our weaknesses for his purposes, yes, that's true. But to draw that from here, we might end with us thinking once again, we're the deliverers that we need. Our problem is we're always trying to save ourselves, and we can't. So what are we supposed to do with this? I think the first application here is what we, we need to not make the same mistake the Philistines did is they looked at God's chosen deliverer, and they despised him, and they laughed at him, and they dismissed him as irrelevant. Here's the present-day gossip about Jesus. Good teacher, nice man, not God. Delusional, someone to be pitied, tragic, a liar maybe, con artist, exclusive, just some Jewish guy in the middle of nowhere in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, and he got in trouble, and his followers started a cult. Or, or maybe this is nearer to home for us here, yeah, he's my God, like for sure, Jesus is my God, but that's like a Sunday thing, or it's a Bible study thing. It's a Sunday morning thing that sometimes once a month, maybe, yeah, Sunday morning thing. It is all too easy to take this salvation and this gospel and this hero for granted. Yeah, yeah no, sure, yeah, like as in, yes, yes, Jesus died on the cross for me, but, but today, or, you know, tomorrow, back to me. What we need with the gospel about this unexpected Savior Jesus is humility, which is not that thing, it's not, when we say humility, I'm not saying beat yourself up, self-deprecation. C.S. Lewis, who's an Oxford professor, uh, Christian philosopher, he has a helpful, I think it's a helpful definition of humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. But here's the thing, as soon as you define humility that way, the tricky thing about humility is you can't work on humility by focusing on it. Like, we've already, like, already, as we're thinking about, yeah, I need to be less humble, less and less humble, just talking about it is making you less humble. Real humility is not thinking about yourself, but that's what we're doing. You know, so C.S. Lewis, he, again, helpful here, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's, this, it's a really, really interesting book where uh, it's written about two devils. Uh, there's, a, there's a devil named Screwtape, and he's writing to his young nephew, Wormwood, uh, who's a junior level devil, 
and he's teaching him, he's giving him advice on how to tempt a human being. So th- th- this is a, this, this, I'm going to read you just a few quotes here. This is a devil, just remember who this is. This is a devil giving another devil advice on how to tempt a human. He says, I see your patient, that's his human, I see your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to this fact? Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt. Self-hatred can do us demons such good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt for others, for gloom, for cynicism, cruelty. So let him think of humility not as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talents and character. Okay, so this, this, this business of humility, how do you work on humility if you're not supposed to think about it? If you can't look at yourself for humility, what are you supposed to do? We've well, got to look at someone else who is awesome. One night, uh, we were having dinner with uh, friends, and another guest at this dinner turned out to be a music producer, uh, and he, had a, he started his own record label, Turns out uh, that the, the, he, he uh, was producing music for two of our most favorite artists, uh, musicians. So, you know, we find this out, and now we get really, really giddy. And I mean, like, feeling the hairs in the back of the neck. Like, and, and it's, he's really easygoing. Uh, and so we just start asking him question after question. Uh, and at one point, we've just totally forgotten about dinner. And we're just staring at this, this guy with this, you know, really glossy, starry-eyed, you know, look on our, our face. And then all of a sudden, he asked me, Blake, where'd you go to seminary? And I, I literally, I just kept staring at him with this dumb smile on my face because I forgot. And I laughed, and I said, because I, wait, what? Did I go to seminary? And I, I mean, even Ryan could tell what was like, and she was laughing at me. I was enthralled by this cool guy with cool glasses and a cool haircut, and he's wearing this cool shirt, and he's telling these cool stories. So when he asked me about myself out of nowhere, I I was thinking, like, Blake, who's Blake? Uh, Which is weird because I love me, and I love telling people about me. Uh, But there I was humbled before this guy. But now that I've thought about it, and now that I've told you, that humility's gone. Like, that's done. Like, I know the next time I see him now, I'll either put on a show, you know, to act like I'm not, you know, impressed, or I'll be really, really shy, neither of which is humility. Or maybe I'll actually get to know this guy, hopefully. You know, maybe I'll get to know him better, and then I'll realize if I get to know him better, he's not big enough to keep me humble. Because it's going to turn out he's really not all that awesome. Humility is like that. Like, so, so who is big enough? Like, who is big enough to keep us humble? To know we're in need of a Savior, and it's not us. Who is big enough to keep us expectant? It's that Savior. It's only Jesus, this unexpected judge and Savior. It is this thing of, look to Jesus who humbled himself to the point of leaving heaven, who did not give thought to himself, who sees you and he sees me in desperate need, and he comes for us. Even this thing of being born as a poor baby, 
lives amongst us, humbles himself to the ultimate point of taking your hell on a cross to save you. Look to him expectantly. I mean, every day till you forget yourself again and again and again. Uh, not, and, and listen, the goal of all of that is not, it's not just to get humility, it's to get him, this most unexpected of heroes that will humble you. And this is, this is the humility that you and I need when your expectations of yourself fail. And you will fail yourself, and you'll fail your expectations for yourself. This is the humility you need when your expectations for your life fail, and they will fail. And even your expectations of what Jesus will do with your life, your expectations of what Jesus is doing with your life, those expectations are going to fail too. And all of that is a good thing because, again, that ultimately is about us expecting us to save us. And this humility, this Jesus-directed expectation Jesus has not failed to save you. That's the good news. He's done it. And Jesus' expectations for your life do not fail Jesus. Jesus is never disappointed for, uh, uh, with his expectations for you. That, that is the humility you need about yourself. This is the humility you need for others, too, who will also fail your expectations. And I mean the humility that you need for others who are right here with you, who gather here on Sunday with us, who gather in the church on Sundays. I mean, who do you expect? Let's ask this question. Who do you expect to see here? The church is supposed to be that one group of people in all the world where we look at each other, not in terms of what we have accomplished for ourselves, not in terms of how much we've screwed up our lives. The church is supposed to be that one group of people where we look at each other in terms of what Jesus, our champion, has done for each of us. That means we see each other as those for whom Jesus died. We look at each other, we see each other as the one whom Jesus loves. Expect to see every kind of person here with every kind of problem. And expect that what they need is what you need. Jesus and his grace. And come here and expect to care for one another with that grace. And expect to equip one another to take that grace out there. Because this is also the humility you need for others who do not know they need Jesus. The last question, who is Samson dying for here? He's all alone. Samson is not dying for his friends. He doesn't have any. Israel has abandoned God. When Samson dies for Israel, he's dying for his enemy. And with Jesus, it's the same. When Jesus dies on the cross, he is dying for his enemy, for us, and for them out there. Romans 5, from the New Testament, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. People out there are not expecting that they need Jesus. But do you look at others without Jesus, expecting 
He is who they really need. And do we expect to hold out that grace to them? Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, truly uh, blowing up all our expectations for ourselves, for our lives, for what today is supposed to look like, for what tomorrow is supposed to look like. We, we thank you right now at the, in this point of, of faith because uh, your expectations are better. And Father, we, we pray that you would give us uh, wisdom uh, to, to look to Jesus and to expect that you are caring for us right now. What, whatever our circumstances look like, that you love us, that you have saved us, that you are our hero who has done what we cannot do. Help us to look to Jesus today expectantly. We pray that you would help us to wake up tomorrow uh, and expect uh, uh, Jesus to continue to care for us and ultimately expect that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. Father, uh, bless us with your grace here today. Uh, uh, the power of your Holy Spirit working mightily in your means of grace. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. If you will look here to this table, this is a table of communion where God's people gather together to taste and see that the Lord is good and that he